This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom, everyone. We're live here in Jerusalem on Tisha B'Av. Um, over the years, I've done a, a class on Tisha B'Av at Eshat Torah, which had, uh, you know, it'd usually be a pretty packed room. I don't know how many people were there each year, but, but it was kind of my, my experience that I shared with everybody. But since Corona, it has not been happening. And uh, our outreach program has uh, you know, basically gone away and, and I've been relegated to this studio and uh, recording from here. And, but we're all in process and this is all part of our process of our lives and, and uh, experiencing things in two dimension has become uh, kind of a given for us in a big way, but uh, thankfully, at least here in Israel and many other places, the, we're on the other side of the pandemic in a big way, and, and back in 3D life, which is great. You know, in um, in this situation where we're, we're post-destruction uh, of Jerusalem and, and deep into the exile, there's a couple of things that come to mind. One of them is hope. Um, I know a lot of people feel like we're getting further away than closer, but if we, if it were a hundred years ago, we would all be in Europe right now. And, um, and we'd be in our, you know, whatever our situations would be in Europe. And we'd be having Tisha B'Av fasting and we would not be thinking that we're anywhere near coming back to Jerusalem, you know, we'd be like, oh my gosh, it's so far away. Like, how are we ever going to get there? And, um, oh, Shai, just let me know if you can hear the fan behind me because I have a motor running. Just give a thumbs up if you hear this fan. Let's see if the sound quality is better without it. Hold on one sec, everybody. certainly bothering me. Does that sound better? Same thing. I didn't find a difference. Same thing. Okay. So I guess Macs have good microphones. Um, anyway, the we would have felt hopeless, like meaning the stretch would have been from like here to here to get to from where we were in, in Europe or whatever exile, if you're Sephardic from a Sephardic country, to get to temple rebuilt with Mashiach. But the fact is, is I'm giving this class now, like, like this close away from the Temple Mount. And, and we drove out with our latest married couple who flew in two days ago and drove out for them to tear their shirts with a view of the Temple Mount on the, on the uh, Tayelet in Talpiog. So we're like, we're, we're really close. And we're also a sovereign country now. And you know we're we're uh, you know we're not just guests here we are we're we're running this country and so things are things are well on the way there we're also in a situation where if we had the i guess the the enough of a po- enough of the population interested in being you know 
to, to rebuild the temple if we have enough of the population interested in that that would also be taking place and and also if we weren't um if if we that would the truth is it would just take enough of the population to get things uh, rebuilt on the temple mount because it's um you know it's really just a function of of courage and um you know, obviously it would be, it would upset a lot of people and, and no one wants to rock the boat, but, but we have, we have uh, mitzvahs that we're obligated to. And the uh, many, many of the commandments in the Torah, I mean, everyone knows how carefully we keep Shabbat and everyone knows how carefully we keep kosher and, and, um, you know, we're, we're like uh, pretty busy with that stuff. Like try to get, you know, what would you have to do to get a Jew to break Shabbat? Like it'd probably take a lot to get them to do that uh, if uh, you could at all, actually, except for maybe forcing them to break Shabbat. So, so what, um, I mean, we're kind of numb at this point in history, but the, the commandments that we have at the, in the Temple Mount are no different. You know, it's the same commandments that we are obligated to be keeping in, um, in, in uh, you know, all the, all the commandments of the Temple, including the building of the Temple. But we have, uh, there's da- there's all kinds of stuff. There's daily offerings. There's, I mean, you name it. I mean, it's a one-sixth of the entire oral Torah is just uh, created for the temple. But a lot more than that, too, because you've got all the holidays and all their offerings. And we're constantly back up on the Temple Mount every time we open a book, like for right now. We're on uh, the Talmud, the, the, the daily daf is on Sukkah. And a lot of that's going to have to do with Temple, temple Mount stuff. So, um, and it's also, it's a, it's a national symbol for us. And even secular Israelis, um, they, they know, I mean, they, they understand. I mean, it's not by chance that the, the state of Israel uses that symbol of the menorah right outside the Knesset of the symbol of the menorah. That, that is, that is a replica of our menorah from the temple times. And, and they actually, um, I mean, it's an exact etch of of the Arch of Titus in 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 Rome. That is the symbol of of the state of Israel, and uh, and you know, the tzitzis has that blue thread. And uh, the other day, I was holding my. I have. I keep one pair for my neighborhood, which is my you know big talus with the blue thread, and that thread represents royalty. And in fact. Uh, uh, the the it's only recently that the that that royal blue has been uh, rediscovered and and proven to be the authentic royal blue and and it's not called royal blue for nothing it was only worn by royalty we have writings from over a thousand years ago that during the roman uh, exile uh, that in europe ancient europe that that no one dared wear that no jew dare wear wore that color it was it was for royalty only it was actually you can imagine like in today's liberal society that there were forbidden colors but royal blue was not worn and uh, jews would not wear that that tailless well today we have we have that back as well so we we are well on our way in many many aspects and and not only that but in the Torah scholarship we're big time in um in a time uh, like 
unprecedented amount of Torah scholarship going on today. And there's, in fact, there's, there's an entire community of yeshivot called, they're, they're related to the brisk path, where all they learn is the laws of the temple. That's all they do is laws of, of Kodshim, laws of the temple and the temple mountain, um, everything surrounding the temple. That's what they study. And it's considered of the most elite yeshivas, not that there should ever be a word elite yeshivas. Sadly, there is. But uh, it's a considered of the most elite yeshivas. It's the brisk yeshivas. And they only study that, meaning only all the rest of the Talmud is left to everyone else. And then there's obviously the um, the uh, the people learning Torah in the Jewish quarter, including a, a Teres Kohanim, um, that, that are uh, the, the splendor of the Kohanim who are who are studying all of the uh, the laws of of the temple, and um, and so we're we're really very much getting ourselves prepared for for uh, what's to come. Uh, the the chances and by the way it's not like i think there's going to be a a state of israel rise upon the temple mount i, I don't believe that's going to happen well at least not anytime soon but but we're all ready and and willing and that and that and you should know that it's it's not just the observant they, there's many people in the in the secular community that that feel that the uh, that we are really not um, being true that we're really, really not being true in having the the um, the destruction still on the Temple Mount to have it be in ruins. Um, you know, it's the, where the the actual court sat was on the southern edge of the Temple Mount, and that was called the Sanhedrin. It was a round building. Today, it's a a giant mosque. It's called the Al Aqsa Mosque, which is a forty. It can hold 40,000 people, and they built an entire downstairs now that holds another 40,000. But that means that, that uh, at least I think it's only full on like Fridays, but that means you have 80,000 people putting their backsides up to the Holy of Holies as they pray south to Mecca. Um, the, the, you know, that, that's, that's not okay, obviously. And, and you're not allowed to plant trees up there, but there's a veritable forest on the Temple Mount. Um, by the way, I'm not here to be insightful. I'm really speaking about about pride of the Jewish people. It's our it's our biggest national sim- symbol, is the Temple Mount, and and it's not a this is a, and it's not a pride of ego. It's it's a it's literally the it's our, our nation's uh, glory, and 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 really it's God's glory. Um, as long as that Temple Mount lies in ruins, so. So that's God's home. And, you know, there was a famous story of Rav, um, Rav uh, Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, who lived in the old city. He was the, you know, the greatest rabbi in, in the generation, uh, going back um, close to 100 years. And one of the great leaders of Europe was, was in the Holy Land and wanted to visit the top rabbi. And the rabbi wasn't really willing to leave his house for this meeting. And he said, the most I'm willing to do is I'll put a fresh tablecloth over my table in my house. He can come visit me. And um, he, uh, this, I forget who the dignitary was, but they, he came, I think he was from England. And 
it turned out that the the great of the generation here in Jerusalem who lived in the old city in the uh, in what's called the Batimachsa, which was where uh, it's where Eshet Torah's old building was. That's where I studied at Eshet Torah before they built the new building. And it was a it was a martef. It was a, like a wine cellar, meaning you, they had to go down these really uneven large stairs to get this dignitary down into a a hole of a room. I mean, it was just a hole, like a pit. Um, but it did have a window, and that window, uh, which was in the southeast corner, uh, northeast corner, corner, faced the Temple Mount. It w- and the shades were closed, and uh, it was the morning hours. And and anyway, they bring him into this pit of a of a room, and there he is with the great of the generation. He says to the says to Rav Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, he says, "What kind of what kind of." situation is this like this is where you live and Rav Yosef Chaim pulled the curtain open um, with the view of of the temple and he says if this is God's house so I'm not going to have a nicer house than God and so if any of you have a, a home that needs it's a fixer upper so feel good about it today you know and for those of you living in the lap of luxury so I'm not telling you to go break a light bulb or something, but but um, but you can consider that if your home isn't perfect, uh, it's probably perfect. And uh, in fact, we have a law in Judaism saying that you're supposed to leave, and preferably in the sight of your front door, a um, an area thirty by thirty centimeters or sixty by sixty centimeters of uh, unfinished home. Churban labat churban. Is memory to the Churban Abayas, the destruction of the temple. So, anyway, let's all be cognizant of it for a moment. Um, we can't live with this kind of le- level of cognizance like we do today, but, but just for our, our own reality check, just to know how much is missing. Um, there's so much missing. Um, first of all, the Jewish people are missing, you know, in the, in Israel. If we if we if we had the temple, so then it would make so much less sense to be living, let's say, in New York, for example, or in Los Angeles or Chicago. It would be like, you know, if we if we had our temple, and the meaning the Jewish people were. When I say the temple, I meant I mean the whole pictures set up perfectly if we had all of the picture perfect all the people watching this from outside of israel would be in israel the the entire jewish people would be there wouldn't be people wouldn't go anywhere wouldn't be anywhere else we'd all we'd all just be here and and then so that would have a massive impact so for example i know a lot of jews outside of israel who think israelis are a little nuts and um and so they're kind of thankful to be around like polite Westerners, even though you should know if you were like convulsing on the side of a lot of streets, you, you know, outside of Israel, people would just like be careful not to get dirty as they step over you um, in Israel. And you should see what happens when someone falls down in Israel. It's like, it's like a dog pile just trying to pick them up because everyone's trying to pick them up together. Everyone just like goes to grab them, and like you know, one of them jumps in the ambulance with them to the hospital, and and uh, you know, it's there's there's a tremendous care 
of one another here. And, but, but notwithstanding, you know, you might find people more polite in Western society, you know, British people are happy to say, you know, jolly good day, old mate. And, uh, and it's, uh, but you, you know, you don't know who they're burying in their backyard. Um, so yes, Israelis are known as sabras. They're sticky. They're uh, sticky. <laughs> Maybe sticky is not the right word. Uh, prickly on the outside, but sweet on the inside. Um, but the funny, the the not so funny thing is, is that um, the the um, uh, living room Zionists. What are they? What are they called? Shai, you remember what the term is called? Living room Zionists, the ones who watch about Israel from their couch. What are they called? Armchair Zionists. Armchair Zionists, sorry. So the uh, the armchair Zionists, um, a lot of them have tremendous good attributes and, we, and we'd love to have them here. But the funny thing is, is if you just keep visiting Israel or coming here to study for a few years, if like that's your Israel, so then, so then our population never gains you. You understand? You're like, you're just a polite tourist, but we want actual polite inhabitants. And, and this, this whole country, I mean, imagine, imagine if the, uh, uh, we have something like, I don't know, 5 million Jews living in the U.S., let's say, for example. Imagine those 5 million Jews were here. You know, that means all the standards of U.S. living, inter the interaction, the uh, business acumen, the, all of that becomes, you know, part of the uh the our part of the system of israel and it's like we need you you know we need you in a big way here and and uh but the thing is is i when i hear people complain about israelis it's like yeah it's because you're not here and the other thing is is would it force god's hand you know other people say well it's dangerous there because you know rockets are being launched from gaza and but would they be launching rockets from Gaza if all the Jewish people were here and and behaving themselves and living living Judaism? I mean, imagine imagine just if uh, the observant Jews of the U.S., which you know you would think are the more likely ones to move here, considering that they their their belief in Torah is, includes all the all the stuff surrounding living in Israel. So you know, it's one thing if you're secular and you want to come hang out in Tel Aviv, that's cool, but. But if you're observant, so then the very Torah you observe, part and parcel of it is all the mitzvahs that you do in the land of Israel. And therefore, living in the land of Israel, you would think would be a high priority. But imagine those, I don't know how many thousand there are, but imagine 300,000 of them moved here. 300,000 of them moving here. What an effect that would have to have 300,000 child-rearing observant Jews moving to the land of Israel as opposed to just, you know, praying about it all day, but like actually moving here, what a difference that would make in, in our country. It would just switch things around so much that it would be, and you imagine the seats in the Knesset, <laughs> it would be no more of these election after election because it would be like, you know, that's a significant number of voters. So it'd be, an, it would be a no brainer that, that Torah, that Jewish interests would be represented in the in the parliament in 2021, and then when you add, when you add all all the births, you know you're talking about uh, 
you know, a massive amount of, uh, of, uh, of uh, voters in the parliament and which would, which would really shift, you know, change the tide. Um, Um, but what I'd like to talk about, I think everyone here would have their vote. If if I asked each of you on the group what your vote would be to bring back the you know bring back the Jewish people back home in in all our glory, I think people would say different things. I asked it at my Shabbos table, so I'll give you a little bit of a an idea of what I heard. I don't think people here would say much more. Um, there was a Shabbat, you know, a, sh- a Shabbat campaign around the world. Um, the most important one I heard, I think that, well, I guess everyone would agree is important is, is, uh, is, uh, what's called avatrinam, which means love, uh, loving your fellow Jew, uh, without, you know, making it dependent on something like that we would love each other fully. Um, I think everyone would agree with that. Um, I think general, uh, Torah observance. Um, I think respecting one another would be a high level of uh, of um, of bringing back our glory. Um, uh, I've heard people say uh, Jewish literacy, like that would also bring back our glory because a lot of people just have no idea what we're missing. Um, some filmmakers you know, recently started studying about the temple, the destruction of the temple and have decided to make, I think it's already made, it's going to be coming out, um, one of the, a major motion picture on the destruction of the second temple. Um, this is going to be a major motion picture on that. You can see a little bit of a trailer on that um, on YouTube. I forget what it's called exactly, but if you put in Hebrew, Horban Abayas, I think some of the trailers come up for that new movie. It's going to be one of those semi-animated type of technologies. Anyway, but here's the thing that that I believe is going to bring it the most, and this is what I want to be the thrust of this uh, this session we're doing together, and that is a, a transformation in consciousness. That because it's, I don't think necessarily it's enough for the Jews to have the transformation, meaning all those other suggestions were the Jews. But if the Jews had that transformation, you still have to deal with the nations. And what all that, what all that Jewish pride would lead to would be probably World War III all over Jerusalem, which may happen, you know. It, uh, I mean, it does say in our sources that, you know, the prophet says that the nations of the world are going to rise upon Jerusalem. They're going to rise all Jerusalem upon Jerusalem. Now that's that's pretty interesting. You know what that'll mean. You know what, what kind of war that's going to be because it doesn't sound exactly like it's against the Jews. There, it sounds like the nations are rising on Jerusalem to have some kind of conflagration. Now it could be that those nations would be the ones allied with the Jews and those not. You know, so a lot of nations are not allied with us, but many are, and some of those are superpowers. So. Um, and, and interestingly, we're pretty allied with the U.S. We're pretty allied with Russia. We're fairly allied with China, and um, and um, and now with some Arab countries. But but they're not allied with each other. Meaning they're they're always playing war games. The U.S. and China and the U.S. and and Russia and stuff. So so maybe they're all going to come up on Jerusalem, 
you know, and have to choose sides on how they feel about what we're up to here. But who knows? I mean, you know, if we really went for it, you know, if we really went for, you know, you see how, how paranoid the Arab world is about our relationship to the Temple Mount, meaning just to send 10 men up there to move their lips is enough for Hamas to start an entire war. So, so can you imagine if we actually did something up on the Temple Mount, like something significant as in just out of national pride? Can you imagine then what would be? And whatever. I don't want to discuss that. What I do want to discuss is a world shift in consciousness, like an entire shift in consciousness for our planet. You know, what if we had that, that kind of shift in consciousness? You can turn off the slide over my head. I have some pretty fancy cameras here, so I'm thinking to go with the natural light right outside my studio. Um, that looks fine, everybody. Yeah. I don't need, I realized my nose was like bright white because of a giant LED right over my head. Okay, now the, um, so what do I mean by, by a change in consciousness? You know, everything I've said so far in this session about Jerusalem, about the Temple Mount, about the, you know, values. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who don't believe in those values. They wouldn't be interested in all these values. Um, what if they had a change in consciousness? What if they had a transforming transformation of consciousness? Tell me, how long does it take to have a change in consciousness? How long would it take someone to have a transformation in consciousness? So the answer is, is that it's usually pretty immediate. It's pretty quick, actually. People can have a complete shift in consciousness in a matter of, of minutes. You know, I think all it takes is one cataclysmic external situation for an external shift in consciousness. All it takes is one external, oh, internal shift in consciousness. I mean, I know atheists who have, who have, eaten a mushroom that was psychoactive and were believers they were believers in God within um, you know basically moments sorry about that I'll repeat that mute everybody again as more people join they don't come in muted oh I bet I have an option for come in muted one second let me see if I have that option uh Something just happened. Hold on. Stop share. Okay. I haven't done this in a while, and I think my... I've never used this laptop, so <laughs> I have a feeling if I touch it even a little, it clicks on something. Hold on one sec. Just going to... Here we go. Uh, oh, that was that. Okay. Boom. More. Mute upon entry. Oh, it is. It is there. Okay. Fine. Okay, back to us. So the, yeah, so I know people who came in atheists and had a, you know, a psychedelic uh, molecule ingested and became believers like that, meaning just like that, an internal absolute shift of consciousness. 
uh, a shift of consciousness that was you now God oriented, was full of love, was full of uh, openness. Um, they say, um, I think I heard um, the, that that you know there's a, one of the traits is openness. So like like if this is the index of openness in the traits that psychologists mention. So, you know, there's, there's one and there's an index point and then there's 10 and then an index point and and 10 and then an index point. And people don't generally move a lot on the index points. And actually, if anything, throughout their lives, they get less open as they go because, you know, the, the brain's neuroplasticity uh, becomes less as people age. Um, But, but they found anyone of any age who experiences one of these psychedelic compounds moves an entire index point up in openness afterwards and the the likelihood that they would join a progressive liberal party after ingestion of such a thing and leave the conservative movement of uh you know of uh you know republican conservative style movement is is very high after that as well and that's mostly just based on the misunderstandings of someone ex- extremely excited about their openness you know but but you know you look at me you won't find anyone more open than me i'm like crazy open but but it doesn't mean that we no longer conserve values okay we still conserve values like maybe the past had something to tell us over the generations i'm also very progressive but the place to be is always in the middle always right in the middle of of progress while conserving the past and uh, so it's just a level of a matter of immaturity there but what i'm discussing now is a shift of consciousness that's really what we need now to rebuild we need a shift of consciousness and that goes for everybody Meaning, meaning the exiled Haredi Jew needs a shift of consciousness, big time, big time. The um, secular Israeli needs a shift of consciousness, big time. But the Gentile um, throughout the planet needs a shift of consciousness in a major way. The religions of the world, you know, Judaism's the only non-religion that's called a religion. You know, Judaism's not a religion. You know, what's the difference between a religion and a cult? The answer is the amount of people following it. Okay, meaning if you boil down every world religion down to its origin or originators, it, I mean, it's it's just, you know, if it's a handful of people, so those are, it's a cult belief, all based around the, the uh, having heard what someone believes God said, you know, Judaism is not a religion. We're not an, we're not an oversized cult. We, we're talking about three million people who were born amongst a nation. In where I mean, we're the only tradition in the world that's from another country. You, know, you meet a Mexican, he's from Mexico. You meet a Brit, a Brit he's from Britain. If you meet a, a Frenchman, he's from France. You know, the, the Jews. We're the only people in the world that that are from Egypt. We're not. We're not from Israel. This isn't. This is. This is only our land because God said so. Not because, not because we're from here. And, and the, the, um, we're all. There were three three million people standing at the revelation of Mount Sinai. You know that's who stood there. And so this is just a subject of a shift in consciousness for the world. Um, 
yes, it's it's asking for a major amount of maturity, you know, for someone to for someone to let go of of their belief system. Well, that's what I mean, a shift in consciousness. For everybody, meaning even the Jews, like even the, the most observant Jews still need a major shift in consciousness. Now, I'm going to say something a little bit radical now, and that is that the shift in consciousness isn't up to us, and I believe it's already happening. And it's not happening in the Jewish world. The Jewish world has been, um, especially the black hat, um, ultra-Orthodox world, is set up specifically to ossify as much as possible, like the opposite of neuroplasticity, meaning their answer to the, to the, the, the Haredi or black hat answer to the um, to the two hundred year old enlightenment movement was to stop progressing at all. Meaning, we're even going to wear the outfits that the originals that people were, that formal attire was two hundred years ago. We're actually going to wear that stuff, you know, here in two thousand twenty one on a ninety eight degree day, which it is here in Jerusalem. You know that that that's what I wore back and forth to synagogue today. The um, we're we're not going to progress we're going to just dig in our heels and hold on till the end of days um and don't forget everyone i'm fasting and not and didn't have coffee this morning so i just for the first time forgot what in the world i'm talking about i know we're talking about a shift in consciousness and um Oh yes, so so the, so what I was what I was saying is that is that the is I'm going to give a radical approach to the shift because it's already happening, the shift's already taking place, and what that shift is is that people are going to shift back to pure. consciousness of soul and God and the radical part is that it's already happening around us you see people who are having gender dysphoria people who are having this younger generation you realize that kids growing up no matter what denomination they are and this is something that happens very shockingly to to the very observant Jews Jews is that kids growing up today and I'm saying kids from little kids all the way to um, teens are having um, gender dysphoria gender fluidity and they're they're now be careful not to fall into the mindset of like okay they're just a bunch of idiots they're it's too pervasive right now. Something's happening. And I would like to, I don't know what if, if what I'm about to say is absolutely true, but what I'd like to do is, is to endeavor to say that what's really going on is that consciousness is coming back to our planet. And when you get truly conscious of your soul, 
it doesn't have a gender. You understand? Like if I look at my screen right now and I see David Gresson, even though he's wearing purple, he looks like a man. Okay. And, uh, and then there's some bearded dudes in this group and there's some females in this group, including, I think one of them is my daughter actually. And, um, and the, you know, that, but that's, that's not your actual consciousness. That's your, that's your anatomy, first of all, because you probably have male or female anatomy. Maybe it's your clothing. Maybe it's how you affiliate. But if you ask a high, if you ask a late teen with a high IQ who can articulate this, which is like those three, you know, those two high IQ and can articulate are, uh, you know, I know late teens with high IQs, they're not articulate. And, but a late teen with a high IQ could probably say to you, it's not, let's say it's a boy. It's not that I want to be a girl. I actually have no interest in being a girl. It's just that it doesn't matter anymore because in the purest state of, of the living soul that God put into all people, that soul, by the way, is stated in the feminine. It's called nishama, which is female, nishamot, nishama. That soul has no gender. Do you realize that when, when the, soul com- the soul comes into a fetus only on the 40th day, and you're allowed to pray, like let's say you have uh, a lot of boys and you really want a girl, so you're allowed to pray for a girl up to the 40th day. Once that soul comes in, the soul itself doesn't have a gender, but God wants it to do a certain, every, every embodied, every soul that gets embodied has a purpose for its life here, and, and it's going to have to play it out either as a man or a woman. And so the soul comes on the 40th day, and, the, and the, it comes into the fetus on the 40th day. It turns out scientifically, you can't know male or female till the 40th day, which is really cool that our sages for millennia have told us that you can only pray for one or the other for the first 40 days. Anyway, the, um, the, the soul has no gender. And so could it be that these teens now, of course, highly confused, very immature, certainly inarticulate, uneducated, or shall we say indoctrinated, which to me means uneducated, the, could it be that what they're really crying out to say is that, is that I'm actually just a soul. I'm just a conscious soul. And the mistake is to say, don't pigeon me, pigeonhole me in my anatomy. While, while meanwhile, a mature person would say like, you were born a certain, you were born a certain, you know, anatomically, an anatomical gender, because because you're there's a god i mean think about it you can get back to god just using the soul this is the third biggest kasha of uh or the second biggest kasha that atheists second biggest attack atheists have to deal with the first is obviously the big bang because atheists have a really hard time dealing with the beginning that's not good for them and the second biggest one is the actual existence of the soul that's a major that's a major um, uh, problem for atheists because because souls don't show up. Your your consciousness doesn't show up on a brain scan. It doesn't show up in an MRI. It is not physical. 
So the actual I that is you doesn't show up anywhere in the physical world, doesn't exist physically. And, well, let's think about this in perspective of Tishambhav now, because if someone believes that they are their body or their thoughts, which you're also not, like everyone right now, think about a ball. Are you a ball? No, you're you thinking about a ball. You're a conscious being thinking about a ball. Okay, so you cannot be a ball just because you're thinking about a ball. You're thinking about someone praying at the Western Wall. You're not a person praying at the Western Wall. You're a person who's sitting and thinking about that. So that I is the conscious self, and it doesn't show up physically. So where does it come from? So the answer is, well, it must come from something that's also not physical. And what is that thing that's not physical? So the answer is, it's God. Well, what's God? God is a term we use for something that's not physical, but conscious. It's that simple. You know, I've had atheists say, well, that's, you know, when I talk about how God is the nothingness before the somethingness, I've had, uh, I've actually had atheist physicists say to me in my class, they've said, you know, it's a little presumptuous, Rabbi, to call the nothingness that we study in in in, uh, theoretical physics to call it God. And I say to the guy, Tell me, what does God mean? What does the word God mean? And then the guy thinks about it for a moment. He's like, touche. Right. <laughs> because God is, it's just a term we use for, for an unembodied consciousness. It's a term we use for the nothingness that precedes the somethingness. That was clearly conscious because if the nothingness wasn't conscious, there would never be a, 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 an expanding universe. Because the propensity of nothing is to remain nothing, obviously. That's what it would have remained. And so, therefore, some kind of consciousness created the world. Well, what do you call a consciousness that's unembodied, if not God? That's the term we use. Now, I know God comes because of the world religions, God, or the the post-Huskala, you know, Haredi world. But, you know, most people's either were taught about God by religions, which Judaism is not one, or they were taught about God as children, never to be, never to have their their version of God updated, you know, because uh, the older you get in the Haredi system, the less you're allowed to ask about God. You know, by the time you're, I guess, eight years old, it's already considered not something you should be asking about. Uh, someone sent a little, uh, please remind me what we're talking about, but I see a little, someone sent me a little message. Oh, no, someone just repeated what I had said. And uh, someone else said the God you, there's a famous line, I've heard it in the name of so many people, this one in Shlomo Karlebach was, the God you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. So anyway, that's the famous joke about when people, you know, have concepts around God. Uh, By the way, can you conceive of nothing? Nothing's inconceivable, right? You can't actually have a conception of nothing. So think about this. Think of this as an oxymoron, having a God concept. So like the world religions or or Haredim teaching their kids about God, they're teaching the conceptual version of God. So that's called a God concept, right? But since nothing can't be conceived, including the consciousness of God before creation, so it's inconceivable. And therefore, no one should really have a concept of God. That's why you'll hear 
um, one of the great Kabbalists of our generation, who's a real master of prayer. His name is, uh, yeah, I don't know his name. <laughs> He's called the Amshin of a Rebbe. And when he says a blessing, sometimes he says the word Ata, which means you, many times. You know, he'll be like, Baruch, I'm not going to copy his Baruch, but it's something like, Baruch, in his Polish accent. But he'll say Ata, 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 And it's not because he's OCD. It's because he's, he's, trying to say you without conceiving something you know it is not easy to wipe out all conception but if anyone can go into that state of pure nothingness which we can all do i mean all of us can go into meditation but he'll keep saying atta until he finally hits it right on the nose of no nose meaning just no concepts whatsoever so so the um but let's get back to uh, consciousness. So the very fact that you have inside of your consciousness that is not physical, it must be sourced somewhere. Everything has a source. So where, where'd you get that? The answer is you got it from, an, from the consciousness of whatever precedes creation. You got it from God. That's where, that's where the soul comes from. So imagine the whole world got just that. And I and like I was saying before, I believe that the teens have it. They don't know how to decipher it. You know, they don't know how to deal with it. And just like my example before, I'm sure many more people have taken psychedelics and didn't have a God experience because just because you're having a pure ex- conscious experience doesn't mean you have the right the right ability to know what to do with it. And the same thing that that the teens who now have this sense of being, I'll give you another proof of their sense of being, is how lazy they are, that they can just sit in, in front of a screen all day, whether it be their phone or their computer, and just not do anything. The, because think about it, if you've achieved being, if you're in pure being, pure conscious being, like why would you get up and do anything? You know, okay, if your body tells you you're hungry, but, you know, if someone tell, if someone would bring you a, a, a sandwich or bring you the drink, why get up? Why get up? Once you're in consciousness, why not just stay right there and don't, don't do a thing, you know? Why, why not? Why, why should? And then, and then, and the other thing is, if you're immature and you don't know how to decipher your consciousness, so why would anything be true? You know, just this just being, you know. And so and so I believe that perhaps well let's put it like this. Whatever your mess whatever your messianic scenario is, as I said earlier, you'd probably just wind up in a world war and we wind up with zero to begin with. We'd be back to nothing again. So think about it what would be a better scenario than your messianic scenario, if not a total shift in consciousness where the whole world finally caught on? Well, we're not going to be able to create that shift in consciousness, but what if God's doing it right now? What if it's happening already? Okay. It's being misunderstood. It's being lost on the teenagers and stuff, 
But what if it's actually taking place? What if that's the reason for, for, the, for the whole 1960s and the influx of consciousness that took place as a result? What if consciousness is, I mean, the, today it's like this massive movement, it's billion dollar industry, the mindfulness movement, which is like the kind of the pinnacle of the human potential movement in seminars, books, podcasts, you know. Isn't that a more viable, I mean, not, I'm not in competition with any of you of a viable messianic scenario, but isn't that a, a kind of a better one? that there would be this shift in consciousness. And so I challenge you, anyone listening to this today, I challenge you to to have yourself as a committed conscious living being who senses their consciousness with all those mature steps. And let's go through those mature steps now. But I challenge you to live your life that way. Not like the teens who think, oh, maybe I'm supposed to be a girl now that I'm, now that I'm, now that I'm just pure being, you know, maybe I'm supposed to go get a, an anatomy uh, change. Not, not the, not the proper uh, conclusion. Definitely not. So let's take the steps together and see if we can all decide on this. Now, the first step of all the steps is something that's uh, not even a logical step. It's and later we'll do the logical steps. The first step is if you are part of this generation and you have access to this level of mindfulness, then you meditate daily. Period. No day goes by where there's no medit- where you don't meditate. Or put in the positive, every day you meditate. Meditation's just part of your game plan. Okay? Daily meditation. And um, by the way, you don't have to meditate. You just have to go into my into this state of consciousness. So, so as long as you're a few minutes a day firmly planted in the seat of consciousness, there's different ways to do that. Um, uh, intense sweating from physical uh, exertion. Um, you can even achieve that in a sauna. You know, for those who go to sauna. You know, the, the people in Finland, I think, sauna like a couple times a week, three, four, five times. Hasid, I know many Hasidim in New York that go several times a week. Um, but that will get you into a conscious state for sure. Um, I don't believe that it's a, a good long-term strategy of, to go into, uh, to use any chemicals that create consciousness. Um, however, it is a good shortcut to get someone's feet wet in their first, um, you know, just to get to know the contours of conscious experience. Um, that, that might be, but of course, that should only be done with the utmost amount of responsibility and hand holding. And please don't, please don't message me to hold your hand for that. It's, it's, uh, I'm sticking with the Rabbi Yom Tov, leader of the possible you, which is a total shift in consciousness. Um, Find someone else in a in your personal zip code who takes people on those journeys. But uh, again, there's um, there's um, someone said they're trying to have their shift of consciousness consciousness while driving carpool to camp. Okay, <laughs> that's cute. Um, anyway, um, there's there's many ways to have that shift of consciousness. 
Um, uh, but the reason I mentioned meditation is it's free. Um, you can get good at it easily. Um, it's a matter of just having YouTube access to start getting into it. Just be careful that if you have a Gentile taking you into a conscious state, a uh, meditative state, to make sure that there's no content involved. Um, because again, we're not, you know, we're not part of the traditions of the Eastern traditions, which will probably be the majority of those teaching, um, which is the, um, with the majority of people online who will be teaching meditation. Um, but, but that's step one is that you, you lock it in every day. Now, obviously, observant Jews who use their prayers properly um, will be uh, praying three times a day. Now, there's some who do it like robots or like bobbleheads or like energizing bunnies, you know. But they, but you do have to wake yourself up to to use it for for getting into the soul, into the soul experience of consciousness. Now, let's take the steps. The steps are as follows. Step one is that consciousness isn't mine, but it's borrowed from the ultimate consciousness of God. So my own conscious, my own achieving of conscious, that conscious state is that mindfulness is already a step into the infinite because God is the source of the consciousness. So so that's step one, is that you are, you are a soul. So I know I've been using the word consciousness this whole time, but, but now I'm saying you are a soul. You have a body, but you are a soul. And having your body in sync with your soul is maybe a nice way to get to consciousness. But the soul is not the body. The body is... It's just the housing. It's the temple of the soul, just like our temple that was destroyed today is housed to God's divine presence. So to your body is the housing of your soul. So why don't we make that step two? Um, step two is, you know, let's do it in real steps here. So let's see if I got a little pen somewhere. You'll, you'll have to write on the, on the tissue buff. Yeah. Um, someone keep score over there. Anyone got a pen? Alicia, you near a pen? Or Tuvia, you got a pen? Uh, Shy, you got a... Okay, good. Tuvia, just get a little scratch paper. I don't know where my pen is. I had pens in here. All I'm finding is lots of cables everywhere. Up, oh, found a pen. Never mind. You can write it with me, Tuvia, if you want. So step one was, first of all, to get tuned into the soul. Step two is that that soul is sourced in God. So God consciousness. Step three is to um, make sure your body. So step three is body is make sure your body's out of the way of the soul. And what does that mean to have your body out of the way? That means that you find out whatever your ideal weight is on that index. I forget what you call that index, but you know, whatever your height is and, I forget what it is, but you, you have to be at your ideal weight because so you're not lethargic. Um, but but to figure out whatever it takes to make your body no longer catch colds, that your body should be strong, 
that you're, you're meaning you're you're ultimately balanced, coordinated, um, flexible. You got to be in top shape, and that includes diet. That you're eating the foods that are appropriate. Oh, BMI, body mass index. Um, you have to also, um, you know, we're talking about what foods, everyone's got different foods that are for them. So, you know, it's just like every person has colors that work with them uh, in clothing. So um, people also have, have uh, uh, foods that are foods they're meant to eat. There's quantity of food. There is um, the freshness of the food. There is the time you're eating it, the amounts you're eating. Um, anyway, all of that is all part of this shift in consciousness, because if your body doesn't feel well, so then you don't feel your soul. You know, if you stub your toe, you're a toe. If you're having a backache, you're a back. If you've got a headache, you're a head. Meaning, what do I mean? You are, you are, you are, you're a toe, you're a back, you're a head. Meaning, remember, we did this already. You are not the thoughts of that pain. You are you and you have thoughts. But what if your thoughts are consumed by a stubbed toe? If your thoughts are consumed by a stubbed toe, so now you are, you have become your thoughts, which is, you know, in this particular case is very consuming if it's a subject, if it's a question of, of being in pain. So then for sure you're consumed by your thoughts. So anyway, that's the level of the body. Now let's go back is, is what are you supposed to be doing? You know, now that you know that you have, uh, okay, I'm in a body. I know I'm, I, who I am is my soul and that soul comes from God. So what am I supposed to do? Well, the next thing is I need to set up my priorities. What do I, how do I actually spend my day? I got a day. I got to do something with it. How do I spend my day? Well, there's two things that you got to do with your day. One is you have to do some acts to sustain your body, both on the short term eating and the long term making a living. So you have to sustain it. And, and the next thing you have to do is you have to get a little philosophical and figure out, well, what are you doing here? Okay, you got a soul, you got a body. What are you here for? What's the point of it all? What are we here for? And so that brings up automatically, it brings up certain things that, that Rav Noah Weinberg was famous for. And he called them the, he called them the five levels of pleasure, but they're really the five priorities of what you're doing here. Well, one of those things is the, uh, is physical pleasure is your body is set up to enjoy you got taste buds, you got your, your, uh, you know, your visual cones in your eye, eyes, you have your audio nerves for your ears, you know, you, you got your sm- olfactory smell, you know, you're clearly here to enjoy. And so number one is enjoy, but there's something higher than enjoy. And that is love. Cause you know, that feeling of love and you're here to love. And so make sure you're being loving, but, but, you know, you gotta be careful cause you can hurt somebody. And so there's a lot of laws between a person and their fellow. And you don't have to look any further than the Torah to know what those laws are. You don't have to be Jewish to keep them. But 
you know, it's very cute when people say love your neighbor as yourself, but what if you love your neighbor as yourself with detail, with like actual detail? You know, I remember I was standing on the roof of Isha Torah talking to some hippie trippy dude and he was like, Rabbi, you know, I love God, you know, and I don't need all your laws. You know, I just want to be good. And so this guy came up to us uh, holding an apple and he said, hey, I just found this apple over there on the bench. What do I do with it? And the hippie said, eat it. And I said to the hippie, I said, listen, the, the Talmud talks about what you do with lost objects, including fruit. How do you deal with fruit, a lost object, you know? And uh, so the hippie got a little quieter because he just got through telling me he just wants to be good. Doesn't need all the details. But what is the Talmud? The Talmud's had to be good with detail, attention and detail. You know, I think we all consider a violin player, you know, we love to hear violin, but the one who was attention to detail, we call a good violin player, which one you'd rather listen to. Uh, we all like to do business and we'd like to do business with people who know something about it, but I'd like to be the one who actually knows the detail. That's the guy I'd like to do business with. He's involved in the details because, you know, the devil's in the details and you better know the details or you're going to, the business is going to not make it ultimately. So, so the same thing, like it's cute. You want to love everybody, but there's details with love. And so what, well, what do we use to know the details. How do we know the details? Well, look around. You'll see we have civil courts, but they don't, you can't try someone in court for like not loving with detail. You understand? You're not going to get very far bringing someone to court for not loving with detail. But how many of us, have, our biggest wounds are not something that you can actually sue someone for? Because we, we just, there was someone, you were probably young at the time, someone didn't know the details. And, um, and let me just open the door of my studio. Hold on. Let's get a little stuff in here. So Torah, Torah goes into a tremendous detail. I mean, just the laws, you know, I have, I have a book on the laws of speech, you know, just not to speak disparagingly about someone it's it's this big it's this big fat book just on the one thing of like not speaking disparagingly. one of the commandments not speaking disparagingly about others now since you love well you want to put your love into uh, you want to put your love into some like kind of receiver you know receptacle that that's built to last I don't want to, I mean, I do want to love everybody and I do love everybody, but I want to like put all my love just into my wife. Like I want to give my wife all of my love. Well, how do we make that safe for her? Because obviously when you want to love like that intimately, it would include, you know, putting the puzzle pieces of, you know, I know no one believes there's male and female in her, but it means like, you know, hands fit together. Like we're, we're like human beings are like puzzle pieces. So, and I want to, you know, a person wants to express love like that, but that's very dangerous for a person because their heart can be broken badly and look no further than the Torah. Once again, that marriage, which everyone takes for granted today, the marriage, the like binding marriage with teeth, 
that came from, that's one of the oldest documents human beings have ever known, which is called a ketubah, which is a marriage contract. Now, I don't know how long people have known about marriage contracts in the Gentile world, but it's, I don't think it's very long. You know, you didn't, women didn't have rights. Did you know that it's so intense, the marriage contract in Judaism, that, that um, a couple is not allowed to sleep under the same roof if they've lost their ketubah? So, meaning their marriage contract. So, so uh, because she's now not protected. So they, they don't have to have it with them. They just have to know where it is. But what if they're, what if they're on vacation, their home burns down and they're, on, they're in a hotel? They have to take separate rooms for that night because their ketubah went up in flames. So now they have to be in separate rooms because she's not protected right now. Now, they won't necessarily sleep in separate rooms because they'll find a Jew to write up a new marriage contract so they can stay in their hotel room. But as I'm saying, like there's detail here. And by the way, in your physical pleasures, I didn't bring it up, but there's detail there too. You know, there's, there's, there's a way to enjoy a steak. And if you're Jewish, it's having, having it slaughtered properly and the blood removed and, and um, it has to be prepared in a way that in vessels that aren't involved with, with milk products and stuff, there's, there's details there to enjoy your pleasures. You know, because remember, let's go back. You have a conscious thing called a soul. That conscious thing called a soul has, is, is part of the infinite. Well, the, the, the infinite gave a prophetic experience to three million of us all at once. And it details how we interface with the physical world. You know, music's a great pleasure, but it's forbidden today. Music's a great pleasure, but it's forbidden once a week on Shabbat. So it's like, it's not a free-for-all. So in your physical pleasures, because yeah, you got a body and you got to do something with it. Well, it seems to be built for pleasure. Okay, enjoy your pleasures. You got the immediate pleasures. You got ones you're willing to postpone and go make a bunch of money so that you can enjoy them later. So, you know, there's a kosher way to make a living. There's all kinds of details. You got to know these details. And that's, that's, Torah is going to teach you how to do it. Torah is going to teach you how to love in a way that's secure and safe for both, both parties. But there's even a higher level. Let's take the next step. Says Rav Noach Weinberg, that's all. Next step is, is, okay, you're alive, you're enjoying your pleasures, you're enjoying your love, but what's the purpose of it all? What's the purpose? And the answer is, well, the purpose is to have a meaningful life. Like, meaning, what's the meat? What, what is it? Well, it's meaning. Well, are there some things that mean more than other things? And the answer is, well, yeah, for sure. Some things mean more than others. Okay, so isn't that interesting that God set inside of us, every one of us has this kind of built-in law of economy where we will trade a lesser meaning for a higher meaning. Like, for example, does two bucks mean something to you people? For sure. 
but for those of you who don't care about your body as much as your taste buds, how many of you trade that two bucks for a Coke? So you're automatically saying the Coke's more meaningful. Coke means more than two bucks, which is, you know, hard to understand, but, but people do believe that. And they believe steak dinner's worth more than 50 bucks. And so they, 50 bucks is worth less than a steak dinner. So we have built in us a hierarchy of meaning. And we're willing to sacrifice on the short term for the higher meaning. Sadly, how many people are out there working and missing their time with their family? Which is because, you know, and no one would, you know, imagine a guy has four kids and you come up to him, you're like, listen, I don't have any, so I'd like, I'll offer you like two million bucks for your fourth kid. Is he going to give them to you? Two million bucks. Take your fourth kid. Meanwhile, this guy's a total workaholic. He hasn't seen his fourth kid other than on weekends. And even when he sees him, he doesn't know how to interface with him because he hasn't seen him all week. So it's like, you'd say to the guy, like, why don't you go home and get to know the kid instead of working all the time? You know, because what are you working for? You're working so you have a home, so you can have your kid. So how many of us have our list all you know, it's not prioritized properly because we're so busy uh, working for the wherewithal to pay for it that we forgot to have what it is and the higher meaning for sure between money and, and family is family. Family is the higher meaning. But could there be a higher meaning than family? There had better be. I mean, I don't know the last time you visited the zoo, but those orangutans seem to have family. They're, they're a hell of a lot of fun to watch, you know. Certainly watched, and my favorites watch the chimpanzees, you know, especially those uh, little ones bothering their adolescent brothers. That's, that is fun to watch. So, you know, it can't be having a family is the highest good. That can't be the highest meaning. The question is, what are you bringing the family in the world for? What are they for? Oh, so maybe there's something higher. Maybe there's a higher cause. So that higher cause, now you can have a lot of causes. I mean, I know a lot of people who give up their living, meaning their time at work, and they give up their time with family for like saving whales and stuff. Maybe you want to save the whales. Maybe you want to feed the poor. Maybe you want to work on uh, climate change, you know. There's plenty of causes out there that people will sacrifice. Material, wealth, and and love so there's a higher level and that's cause having a cause something worth living for you know we know we're going to die so what are you living for everyone knows they're going to die what's your life about so you can have a higher cause i believe the higher cause for a family is is a connection to god actually i believe that uh if you, and we all want our kids to be doctors and lawyers and all that stuff, but, you know, that's wonderful. But if you kids were doctors and lawyers, but had no concept of God, I think, not, I don't mean just concept of God, but like a connection, a, a daily spiritual with God. You know, I think if we had the doctors and the lawyers, but they weren't connected to God, 
I would think there's not a parent in the world who doesn't think they failed. You understand? To perpetuate life, just to perpetuate life is, is you know, that's meaningless. Okay, chimpanzees, that's what the chimpanzees are doing. They're perpetuating life. To perpetuate life, that's their job. But to not have perpetuated a relationship with, with the Almighty, with the, the reason to be, the reason for life itself, like what? what's the point of that? And so there's, there's a higher level truth. There's the, there's the, the perpetuating of, of, of that. And that's a higher level. So now we've got physical existence, then we have love. Now we have purpose. Now there's something even greater than purpose, and that's living it every day. I don't, I'm not saying you have to spend your day, whole day doing it. I mean, if you're willing to, then you're forbidden to work. Anyone who is willing to live purposeful day, like actually to, to like live purpose all day, they're forbidden to work. And if you're one of those people who have, it's these certain personalities that are like these super idealistic types who can like get so excited about ideals and they can just like, they could literally spend their whole life in influencing people towards goodness. Those people, it is forbidden to work. You're not allowed to work. And if you're listening to me right now, you must, I don't care if you work for another year. I don't care if you work for like a period of time, but stop working and get and get busy because it's so rare you're such a rare thing in this world to be that idealistic that you could actually just live your ideals full time and you're and you're going to spend time doing some inane job sales or uh, you know management you know how dare you how dare you you know, I, and, and by the way, I have convinced over the 30 years of talking about these subjects, I've convinced many people to retire. And they're like, how am I going to make a living? I said, you're going to set up a nonprofit and guess who the CEO is? And, and they're like, me? I'm like, that's you? Yes, you're the CEO. And, the, and I say, tell me how much you make right now. He says, I'm, make, I'm making 120000 after taxes. Okay, great. Well, you're not the CEO who makes $120,000 after taxes. And he's like, what? I said, wait, that makes me a fundraiser. And I'm like, oh no, you're not allowed to raise funds. You're going to hire fundraisers. They're also going to be making a living because what you're going to do is full time, help this world not go to hell in a handbasket. You're going to spend your whole day saving this planet of ours. That's what you're going to do. And you're going to make the same amount of money and you're going to, you're going to hire people to raise the funds and, you know, make a difference in this world. And, uh, and that's, and by the way, I was one of those types. I, that was me. I was like, I'm willing to, I'm willing to spend full time. What means the most to me is, you know, like everyone else is, you know, this is my highest meaning. And I'm going to spend my whole life doing that. And for me, I mean, yeah, those who know me, you know, it was uh, Judaism, so that's being Jewish. And the other was uh, Judaism, being you. And so being Jewish and being Jewish. And so I spent my, like, literally, like, for the, you know, back in the golden age of outreach, I spent six to 10 hours a day at Asian Torah during the days talking about what it is to be Jewish. 
and traveled the world teaching it. And at night, I taught the possible you, which was how to be Jewish. And I, that's all I've been doing the whole time. And I, believe me, there's been Shabbos food on the table every week. Okay, right, the bills are paid. So, so you can just live it. And I never even hired fundraisers. Like it just, I just lived on the, just the pure blowing wind of inspiration all this time. And uh, I mean, the, <laughs> I'm sure my bank thinks my bank account's been a roller coaster ride, but, uh, but all I have to do is make sure that Shabbos food is on the table. And it's, there it is with craft beer, good wines, and everything else there needs to be at a Shabbos day. One more and marry off my kids. What more do I need than that? I mean, obviously, excellent riding equipment for mountain biking and uh, several surfboards. Now, oh, and high-fidelity music equipment. But that's only because if you don't have high-fidelity music equipment... Now, first of all, if you don't know your first thing about music, so just stick with the, you know, whatever the car stereo you have is and, and uh, go get a Bluetooth speaker. But if you do know the distinctions in sound. So can you imagine going upstairs and God's like, what was that factory installed stereo? Like, what were you thinking? Like, I'm in the details. Like, I was in the sound waves. So like, how could you not have gotten the stereo that is, you know, just the highest, highest fidelity to the actual original recording of the, of the musicians? So... Anyway, but let's get back. The, I'll go give you the order again. The order was f- material pleasures, love. The next is having a cause worth living for. Number four is living it. No one's getting more pleasure than someone living their cause. You understand all the nine to fivers aren't, who aren't living their cause they may do their cause on the side and that's how much pleasurable their life is. That's, that's how great their life is. Even if they're an hour a day on their cause, that's the pleasure of their life. But think about a full timer. So you're living like you're, you're in number four all the time. Think of the pleasure of your life. And also just another thing is like your kids. Okay. They may be nine to fibers, but think of the influence you had on them that they grew up in a home where their father was full time living the cause. And I'm sorry, I'm going to stop preaching to people who are crazy enough to live the cause full time. Oh, um, one more thing. If your life stinks, um, there's certain people listening to me who believe their life stinks. Um, again, this is only for those whose life stinks. But uh, there are people who feel their life stinks. Um, uh, they're, they're, they, they, they're not married when they wish they were, so they think their life stinks. By the way, I know single people think their life's amazing, but I know people who are single that think their life stinks. So, they're, you know, so they, 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 they're not that interested in life's pleasures. They're, uh, they're not going to go become a rabbi or something, meaning they just basically think their life stinks. So for those of you who think your life stinks, let me tell you about someone whose life stinks. I have a dear student who... Um, who became his life stunk so badly and he so didn't like his life that he finally decided to end it all. Um, he failed several times at killing himself. So then he was stuck with his life stinks and just thinking of the next way to do it properly because he was real never at killing himself. And um, uh, so he was making his plan, but in the meantime, he was on his way back from the Western wall 
Um, by the way, he wasn't a very observant Jew because obviously if an observant Jew is not allowed to end their life because, you know, Torah forbids murder. So anyway, he was on his way back to the Western Wall and he's found a bunch of people looking for a place to eat. You know, everyone's like, you have a place to eat? You have a place to eat? I mean, that's what happens at the Western Wall. At the end of the prayers, everyone's look, all the single people are looking for where to eat. So he decides he's going to postpone killing himself by one week. And what did he do? He went around. He didn't have any money. He didn't have a job. But he went around and he gathered food throughout the week. Then he borrowed tables and then and chairs. And Shabbos night in the Jewish quarter square, he set up a big, long table and created a feast of all the foods that people were willing to donate. And he sat at the head of the table, or I mean, I think he was busy serving people. I don't think he sat at the head of the table, but at one point he sat at the table and felt like, I don't have a life. Meaning, how do you say that? Uh, how do you say, I don't have, I guess, if you have no life, live for others. So he figured out, I don't have a life. I'm going to live for others. And that's what he did. He actually lived for that. And that Shabbos table, it may be still going on for all I know. It probably ended with Corona. But uh, this dear student of mine, who's been my student, I don't know if any of you ever ate at that meal, but uh, he lives for other people. <laughs> he was also gathering stray cats and dogs and stuff. Like He lives for other animals too. And he just said, I, uh, I, I have no life. I'll live for others. Um, it's interesting. I had the same thing, meaning I had a total life. Like I had an amazing life, but I, I was too, I think I had too much mind expanding uh, experiences when I was a teenager and a young kid as well. And um, so when I got to, um, by the time I was like 17, I got to that Kohelis moment where everything's meaningless. And I realized I love my life. I certainly like surfing and, you know, like all that stuff, but that's all great. But, but I kind of got to that point where like, I love my life, but I don't love being alive. I don't love living it. I love my life. I don't I mean, I love myself. I don't love my life. I think that's what I'm trying to say. I love myself. I meaning I'm enjoying my life. I'm enjoying my friends. I'm enjoying my family. I'm enjoying the pleasure, but come on, you know, like, is this all there is? Like, come on. And so I also started living for other people. And, and then like, I noticed just as soon as I got that idea, I noticed that I forget cat, stray cats and dogs. Like I was picking up litter on my way home from that realization. Why? Because like other people will have to see this cup on the floor. Why should they see the cup? I think I was in Santa Barbara at the time. Beautiful, beautiful place. And I was on my way back to the apartment and I, that I was living in and I, I just picked up a cup on my way back and said like, okay, why should, why should someone have to see that? You know? And, uh, and so, but that began my career. Like that moment was like how I became who I am today as, as an artist. I'll just live for others. You know, that's it. I don't think anyone's getting much more pleasure than, me than, than that. You know, I don't care if you got a Rolls Royce and a jacuzzi. You know, that's the physical stuff, but living a meaningful life and living it for others. So the two people was the idealists. They should start living for their cause. And the people who feel they have no life, get up every day and get busy. Take care of people. Go take care of people. Go make this world a better place. You don't have a life, so go make someone else's life easier. See what you can do for other people. 
or join one of the people who's willing to to live their cause all day if you ain't got one okay but anyway that i just don't want to i don't want to leave out the rosh shiva rav noach weinberg's uh, uh highest level of um of inspiration is uh is um is connection to god which is how we kind of started this thing because that was number two in consciousness but it's devakis total god connection devakis well that's called love love is connection right when you feel totally connected to somebody that's called love so it really is in a way love of god but how do you love god you know it's like you know like what are you, what are you supposed to do exactly you know, I know how to love a person. You give to them, you know, you, you hug them. You, you know, there's five languages of love for people. But, you know, with God, what are you supposed to do? There's stuff you can do. I mean, you can tell them you love them. But, but really, it's to experience it much like when you're out of words in total love. And what is that? Intimacy. Think about it. When someone's in the ultimate intimate part of their marriage without getting graphic. You're not even focused on you no know, words, no gifts. I mean, there's touch, but you're not focused on the touch part. It's just, you're not focused on anything, really. You're just in total vibrational connection. And that's our goal with God, to be in Devakis with the Creator. It's the highest pleasure in the world. And and that and that and for that reason, that's why Ralph Noah Weinberg was basically convinced all of us knuckleheads when we were young to spend our whole lives getting people to go for devakas to get go to full connection with god well you want to hear something cool if what we got to is the top level of consciousness is connection to god yeah if that's what we got to that the top level is full connection to god which is really love because love is connection so guess what there's only two concepts in the whole world that have no definition you know what they are god because you can't conceive of nothing and the other's love you can't define it It has no definition i mean you could call it connection but you know my hand's connected to this pen i don't think that's what we mean when we say love you know and i love all people but that's not my connection to my children and I love my connection to my children. That's not my connection to my wife. I love my connection to my wife, but that's not my... It's like, <laughs> there's no definition for love. Which is really weird because everything in the world, there's a concept of it, you know, and a definition, you know, these are, these are tissues. I can take them away and say tissue, you still have a concept. But love and God have no definition. And that's the purpose of life. In the ladder of hierarchy of meaning, there's nothing higher. Isn't that interesting? The two things that are the highest have no definition. Well, let's think about the genius of that. But hear the genius of that? The genius of that is that you'll never stop working for them. You'll never start stop going towards something that you can never get to. 
will never stop. Our marriages will never go stale. Our relationship to God will never go stale. It's the only thing you can never get. And you just want more of it. It's, it's like, it's never enough. You know, I've sat in a lot of jacuzzis in my life. I always got to the enough part. Sat in a lot of saunas. Always got to enough. I've been so into some music that, like, I think I'm like, I'm forever going to listen to this song. A couple of days later, if I hear that song one more time, I will kill somebody. It's the only thing that you can do that's never enough. I can't believe I'm teaching a class right now. I thought I stopped doing this. You people who are listening to me right now, you better give me a ton of feedback because otherwise I'm going to, the next time you're going to see me is Tishamau. If I, I live my daily life, like it never comes up. Oh, why don't I walk into my studio <laughs> and, and talk to myself for, for the next hour? I, it's just, yeah, if you, I mean, you got to know me pretty well, but I'm so experiential that that thought would never cross my mind in a million years. And, and I, you don't understand. I love you people so much. I've, I've flown for one person who needed me. I've, I've driven, I've driven 10 hours, meaning five there and five back because one person needed me. Like I, I love people, but, but as, as experiential as I am, I never in a million years would, it would never cross my mind. Oh, maybe I should go to my studio and turn on. This is why people tell me, like, why don't you post more? I'm like, you're right. You're right. And they're like, you're holding the device. Like, you're in the middle of what's happening with somebody. Like, just post something. You're right. But I just, I never think about it. Anyway, so if you don't mind, because there's, there have been an average about 35 people on this and 35 people on WhatsApp, on Facebook. I can't even say it right. Facebook. So that's 70 people who seem to want to tune in, but maybe it's because you're all not working today. I don't know. But I have a feeling that I, maybe I should keep doing this. Back to, um, back to our subject. I started this whole thing with how do we get Tisha B'Av to end and rebuild the temple? And the answer is it's consciousness. I believe this is all happening it's an undercurrent. It's all part of God's plan. Okay, it's not called history for nothing. Sorry to use a gender, but history starts with a capital H. His story, his story. God's making this happen, and it's gonna happen. The Jews waking up for it to happen. You know, they they have a saying that the that the the messianic era will come. Into a to a, a time when the Jews are either everyone is everyone is meriting it or everyone is demeriting it, and obviously it looks like the Jews aren't going to merit it. We're not going to merit the Messianic era. However, um, it seems that there's a there's a there's an opening of consciousness in the world. That's what's going on. And we're, we can be part of that for sure. I think I'm part of it. 
I've been deeply involved in the consciousness movement since, you know, since I was a kid, since I decided to tune in and drop out of conventional society when I was 11. And um, it's funny how, what a natural progression it was to go from my dropped out of conventional society into the Jewish world, thinking they were not involved in conventional stuff. But uh, I, it was, it was quite a wake up call to discover that the, the black hat movement, you know, ultra-Orthodox Jews have their own conventionality that they're, they themselves are in. But we're like, we as a nation are like, we're so non-conventional. You know, if we had back Temple Judaism right now, like, oh, would the world find out how non-conventional we are? I guess with the first, uh, all it would take was slaughtering one sheep and it would be like, ah, uh, well, that was out of the box, you know? ritual slaughter okay here we go and uh anyway the i i just need a bit of a time check uh shy you still with me over there um can anyone tell me what time it is just because i've i've mincha at 5 30 uh we have an hour just under an hour what time is it now 6 30 is mincha it's what 6.38 now. No! Oh, man, I miss Minha. Okay. Well, I'm blessing everybody to to uh, let this day sting just enough to get you motivated, to to get your acts together. And I bless, I am, bless me to get my act together, but may we all be blessed to get our acts together as, as Klai Yisrael and do Teshuvah Shleim and Mikov Mamish. Amen. Love you all. See you by Shlishi, third, third ba- and final basement dish by Karov, coming to a Temple Mount near you. Shalom, everyone. Amen. Uh, don't forget feedback, please. I need feedback more than once. Shalom. Meaning not more than once. Meaning not necessarily today. So I, so I get a reminder to go. Get back online if you think it's necessary. Shalom, everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.